This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy, our medical and psychological chat show of the week. I'm Dr Autonomy and I'm sitting beside... One empty chair because Lolly Doc is working today. Emergency room docs, huh? Have to work sometimes. I'm also sitting beside Miss Medic and Dr Malice. And we have got a packed show for you this morning. Let me tell you some of the things that we've got coming up. Firstly, you might have seen our Facebook page this week and the video that we posted. The video was of a 10-month-old baby reacting with intense emotion to a song that her mother was singing. Um, It's quite profound and um, intense to watch. And Dr Malice, our resident child psychologist, is going to talk about that today, um, particularly the way in which the emotional tone of of a space and and a baby's environment um, can be transmitted to the baby. It's fascinating stuff. Also, I'm going to be talking about perfectionism today, a term that many of us feel familiar with um, and something that I have been seeing in a lot of my clients lately. And so I thought I would have a bit of a a bit of a deeper look at perfectionism, um, what it is, are there good bits and bad bits to it, um, and what can we do if it's getting out of hand in terms of changing our perfectionistic tendencies? Also, what can we do for kids if we're noticing those sorts of things um, in the children in our lives? And finally, we're also going to have a talk about health websites. I don't know if you're someone who jumps straight on the internet as soon as you have a symptom or someone in your life has a symptom. I'm definitely one of those people. And as you would know, there's a plethora of potential websites out there and it's often hard to know which ones to go to. So Miss Medic, our trusty GP, is going to give us a rundown on her top five health websites so that if you do want to read up on something yourself before you get to the doctor, at least you're reading uh, trusty information and stuff that you can rely on. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Miss Medic, how are you? I'm great. What a perfect intro. <laughs> <laughs> I was really worried I was going to make a mistake, you know. And yeah. then uh, everything would have been a disaster. We yeah. may as well have just not done the show at all. Could never come back on air. That's it. Yeah. Your whole self-worth would have just crumbled. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> does, that, does that qualify as being catastrophizing moment? <laughs> I think it does. Because what I really noted in your intro it was, you know, when your client comes in and displays perfectionism, but not the therapist. Oh, me? Oh, sorry, yes. Yeah, no, what, what it's very true. It's, it's, I think I, I pick up on it in my clients because it feels very familiar to me. Yeah. <laughs> Another reason I thought that this would be a good topic to research in detail. Miss Medica, it feels like a while since we've seen you. I know, I've been gallivanting. Have you? Well, you know, just trying to escape some of the <laughs> Melbourne uh, the cold. I'm not, I'm not a lover of the cold. Yeah, I know. I'm a bit over it. I'm ready for the spring to come. Me too. Yeah. Mm. And Dr Malice, lovely to see you. How are you? It's good to be back, really. And uh, with that video that you mentioned, mm. uh, that really is one of those moments uh, you have that 
becomes memorable for so far over a week, and I would dare say it'll become memorable for months and perhaps years and a career moment mm. because it captures so much in about a minute and a half or two minutes uh, that words, as the old saying goes, you know, a thousand pictures, uh, uh, pictures worth a thousand words. Well, this video is is worth books, really. Uh, yeah. And so that's partly the reason that I, I'm going to do the segment on what is it that children actually can feel, can't feel, and how do we even think about this? Because yeah. it's changed dramatically over the centuries. Can't wait. But before we get into all that, shall we do a quick roundup about what's been happening this past week? And I had a quick look uh, at the newspapers this morning. And of course, the main thing that everyone's talking about is the Olympics. And Miss Medic, I think you're going to talk about the Olympics. Yeah. Well, I, I you know, I think that there's probably a. Um, a lot of variants out there about how we feel about the Olympics. I mean, it uh, probably speaks a lot about perfectionism as well. We could talk yeah. about that a bit later. Is, yeah. is that a worthwhile pursuit? We know that some of our elite athletes have quite spectacular falls from grace after after their careers are over. So mm. to wonder whether sort of striving for this perfectionism does them any good. I have to long. ask if you've been watching Barracuda. No, I haven't. Well, that fits in with everything we're talking about. It's yeah. on our view. Okay. Yep. Sorry, that's, um, continue. That's the... Chris slap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sorry. I'm just kind of... <laughs> yeah. My neural pathways are just kind of connecting right now. I love that language. Oh, neural <laughs> pathways. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Mouse is peaking. <laughs> um, okay, so getting back on track... So the Olympics, the thing that I keep thinking about um, is the Zika virus and the Olympics. So we know that um, so Brazil has been one of the epicentres of the Zika virus and we, we've got this now influx of people going into the area and there were some concerns that were raised in the lead-up to the Olympics of whether it should be cancelled, postponed, relocated. Right. Um, and the general um, consensus has come out that the risk is probably quite low in terms of people that are going to the Olympics bringing the Zika virus back into areas where we haven't had it naturally occurring and then it could, sort of causing this snowballing effect of transmission. So all the, the studies have shown and the estimations, because obviously we're, we're making predictions here, we can't know for sure what's going to happen, but it seems like the numbers are going to be quite low of people getting infected and then the amount of people that could then transfer mm. that. Because we now know that the Zika virus is transmissible by sexual intercourse. So, oh, we know that. I remember yeah. the last time you talked about it, that was a bit of a question mark. Yeah, no, yeah. we know definitely now know that for sure. But yeah. I guess, again, the... Like, how... Um, for how long it's transmissible is kind of a bit up in the air. So I was wondering, I had that little thought, just because I do know some people that are going to the Olympics and um, going to sort of partake or be part of the team. And I was wondering oh, you move what... you in high circles, Miss Maddie. I, I can't help it. <laughs> you look at me, elite athlete. Uh, so no, it's more sort of the medical... See what happens when you switch on your neural networks? Yeah, I, I mean, Wow. <laughs> Neural and social networks. Um, so the, I was wondering what the – and as a GP, like if I see someone who's come back from, you know, travelling to these areas, like what is the advice? What are we telling people in terms of how to keep, you know, their partners safe? Mm. And obviously what we're trying to minimise is this 
um, potential horrible risk of there being a, ser- a serious knock-on effect for for babies. So um, being that of microcephaly, so the small sort of head size as a result of being exposed to the Zika virus while in utero. Mm. So I've been consulting the very trusty CDC website, which is the Centre for Disease Control that's out of the United States, and this is probably our most reliable resource about uh, correlating numbers of infections and infection patterns and giving us our best advice. So I was just going to summarise what the advice is. Yeah, right. So for people travelling to a Zika area, um, if... The advice is if you're pregnant, don't go into a Zika area, number one. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Um, For people that travel to the Zika area and become infected with the Zika virus, it's actually advised that they then, um, for women... Um, don't get pregnant in at least eight for the least eight weeks after they've developed symptoms. Mm. But what's really interesting is that the Zika virus seems to live a lot longer in semen. So for men who develop the Zika virus or have symptoms of the Zika virus when they've been travelling to a Zika-infected area, it's actually advised that they. Um, wait or abstain or uh, use protection for six months after they've had the start yeah. of symptoms before, you know, exposing partners to... That's interesting, isn't it? Because so much of the focus has been on women, you know, pregnant women specifically, but I really haven't heard much about men. Yeah, so know? this is the risk, is that um, men can come out of the area that have had the Zika virus and, you know, wanting to start it have you know start a family or to conceive a child or even to just unwillingly like not use protection but yeah. there is this strong risk of therefore you know transmitting the zika virus and affecting an, a, a baby oh, important stuff to know yeah so but so the other guidelines are that if you if you're a man traveling into the area come back to your already pregnant partner that you use protection through the duration of that pregnancy so oh. someone who's already pregnant that they that when they then have they either abstain from sex for the remainder of the pregnancy, um, or use protection, um, and for people that go travel into the area but don't show any symptoms of the Zika virus, again it's advised that um, at least for eight weeks after being in the area, you don't embark on a, a pregnancy or don't have sex without protection. Wow for both males and females. Important stuff to know, Miss Medic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like it's interesting, I, I guess, um, in terms of people making the decision, do they go into these areas and, and take some of these chances that could affect their family long term? Mm. There have been some athletes that have decided to not go. Mm. Um, and I can, there's some really there's some strange things going on I've seen with um, in the Olympic Village giving out these... Apparently, Olympians have lots of sex while they're there, um, giving out these sort of intensely um, antimicrobial condoms that have got this extra level of protection. And anyway, and and obviously the most important thing for people in the area over, you know, really the most important thing that I need to stress is to avoid mosquito bites. This is a mosquito-borne illness. So using lots of repellent and mosquito nets and all of the the prevention. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Thanks for the update. Well, it, it was well known that uh, Olympic villages give out condoms routinely. This was in the past. It sounds like now they've had to take it to another level in view of the threat. Mm, um, that's right. That it is so real. Wow. Yeah. Mm. We could talk more about that, but let's not. <laughs> Dr Malice, you've got a newspaper article in front of just you. Just to segue into looking at fathers rather than mothers for a change mm. in the risks to babies and offspring... Uh, it's very well known and it's for decades been known about the risks of maternal health and the transmission of uh, risk factors with smoking, alcohol and so on. What caught my eye is a headline uh, to a week ago, Obese Dads May Pass on Poor Health. And so I thought, now, how on earth does that work? What's an obese dad got to do with grandchildren's health? Because grandchildren? This, yes. And this is an experiment from the very reputable Victor Chang and Garvin Institutes, um, and it concerns mice, but it has immediate thoughtful applicability in planning and thinking about public policy. And the finding is that obese fathers at the time of conception have two generations down the grandchildren at risk for obesity if the grandchildren eat junk food. Now, this may sound very odd. Even more odd is the parental status may not be uh, at risk. And it depends on whether the parents eat junk food or not. Now, how does this work? So a man, has a, a man who's obese, obese has a child. Yes. That child might not have yes. any overt um, difficulties with their yes. weight, but their children then yes. do, and it's attributed to the grandfather. Now, both the children and grandchildren would be triggered by junk food. Right. So the question is, what is going on? And the idea that is coming out is this whole game-changing idea of epigenetics, that in the past it was thought the genes are the things that get passed on. And so you had uh, dominant and recessive, and so if you had two parents, it would uh, be passed on if it was dominant, and if it was recessive, if it was uh, co-two parents both having it, mm. passing on. This is a whole game-changer, because here it is not actually the genome that is passed on, but what is called the phenotype. Now, there are two ways of transmitting uh, inheritance. One is genetic, which is certain qualities like... Uh, uh, um, Phenylketonuria. Eye colour actually is a phenotype. Now, a phenotype is the actual expression. The expression is turned on or off by these non uh, genetic, as it's called, non encoding RNA molecules. And the idea is that this is what happens when an obese father at the time of conception passes on these non-encoding RNA molecules that then are genetically, as it were, in the sperm cells transmitted, but they're not actually a genetic transmission, but they're epigenetic. Mm. Now, this is a whole brings into a whole question of things we'll talk about later in terms of stress and trauma transmission. Does a, an actual act of abuse or hurting or injuring have to occur for stress and trauma to be passed on. And the evidence seems to be, no, it does not. As in the video clip, a simple song is more than just a song. 
Far out. It's pretty scary <laughs> to think about that stuff, isn't yeah. it, in terms of how we live our lives and what effect that might have on our children and grandchildren. Now that is, I, That's my reaction. Well, anyway. that would be I scary. just like that you can blame the grandparents so it's not the parents' fault. <laughs> now, that would be the scary part. The good news is that all of this is reversible. Right. Whereas in the old system, we thought that once you've, you know, fractured your brain through trauma, that was it. It's all repairable. Right. My goodness. I can't <laughs> wait for your segment later, Dr. Mellis. I'm going to come back and hear from Miss Medic about her top five health websites so we know where to look. Oh, six. She's telling me six now. Yeah. Six. Doesn't have to be the perfect five. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for getting that wrong. <laughs> You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Miss Medic, talk to me about health websites. Yeah. I had a very sick little boy this past mm. week, which ended up being hand, foot and mouth disease, which sounds awful. It's not related to the animal version. No. Um, and it's not fun, though. But it's it? not fun, yeah. no, for anyone in the house. And I did find myself jumping on the internet and trying to look up what it was about. And I ended up on the Royal Children's Hospital website, but I navigated well some horrendous photos. And one of the websites was about natural remedies and was talking about beetroot. And there was so much stuff out there. So yeah. Yeah, where where should I go? Well, that is that's the whole point of it. it. There is so much information out there, and I guess, and this is look, I don't blame anyone at all for doing this because this is, it's absolutely reasonable to utilise these resources and that quest for information. And I want everybody and all my patients to be really well informed. But I guess we have a problem in that if you just plug something into your search bar or your your search engine and you'll get just so much information and a lot of it has got um, either very specific focus and a lot of it is not really well regulated and so you could and it can be really scary as well because a lot of the time people are jumping on the internet often looking for a bit of reassurance and it's the last <laughs> thing they end up getting if you start plugging in like High fevers in a you know fifteen month old. It like oh, some awful things will pop up yeah, as well. Stuff you don't need in your stuff head. Stuff you don't need in your head. So what I think would be better is to sort of really target. Maybe go to the website that you <laughs> is going to be helpful and search within that. Um, so I thought I would share my top six websites for health information. Six because I couldn't narrow it down to five. And Fine. See, and we're being flexible yeah. <laughs> and adaptable. Um, so my number one, if you just look at one website for health information, I think it should be this one. It's the Better Health Channel. So this is an initiative of the Vic Government Department of Health and Human Services, and it provides so much valuable information on the latest medical um, information on current infections or medical conditions, but in also general health and well-being. Um, so if you only you know, when you look at one, this is the one. It's a funny help. because, you know, I often see that one come up and is that the one that's spelt B-E-T-T-A, Better Health? No. Because oh. I see that and I'm like, oh, that can't be that reputable and so no, I don't go it's there. it's spelt B-E-T-T-E-R-Health.vic.gov.au. Maybe we can put all these up on our Facebook page later Absolutely. Well. Yep, okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's a great so one. first go-to. Yeah, it's got really good information and it's well updated frequently. It's, yeah, it's what um, 
I commonly print out information from the Better Health Journal to hand over to my patients. Mm. Um, so, look, I, well, part of this is I, I regularly use websites together in my consult and I think that part of the reason I do that is to try and demonstrate what are the sites that I think are, mm. are helpful and give people written information because... Gone are the days of the doctor just saying, oh, it's just this, you don't need to know anything about it, you'll be fine. Like, people want to be informed and they absolutely should be informed. Yeah. And so, but it's about giving the right information. Okay, so number two, you've already mentioned it. It's the Royal Children's Hospital mm-hmm. um, website that have a wonderful link called the Kids Health Info Fact Sheets, and they are an amazing resource. So they can go over, like, Everything from, you know, managing constipation in babies, uh, you know, hand, foot and mouth disease. There's that uh, link there. So there's just everything out there uh, for the common and some of the more uncommon illnesses that affect our young ones. And look, a lot of the time, I think it's when kids are involved, there's even more anxiety and um and that that need for good information mm. is particularly important. We know it's our young people that see use the medical services a lot. Um, we know that the children's hospital is overburdened often with their long waits in their um, emergency department. So even having a look at this before you make the call, whether you're going to go to your yeah. GP or to the children's hospital um, emergency department can be really uh, a good move. Yeah. Um, they've got some really good advice there about when... It also yeah, it tells you when something needs the next level of attention. Yeah. So if your little two-year-old's had a big bump on the head, got a big egg on the head, then look up the minor head injuries kids' information sheet on the I children's... I have read that one in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I know the one you're talking about. And then it tells you when you should be seeking emergent, um, you know, emergency attention. Yeah. So really helpful. Number three is the Jean Hales... Um, Website so jeanhales.org.au and this is the go-to site for all things women health related. Mm. Goes through, you know, common um, issues for women in terms of sexuality or their periods and menopause and all those sorts of um, topics. And so it's a, a really great resource um, available great and yeah, a really good one for women and. Um, equally, the Andrology Australia, a great um, resource for all things men's health, so male infertility, prostate, testicular issues, um, and they've got great fact sheets linked there too, so that's another good one. Number I'm sure we had someone on from Andrology Australia yeah. a few weeks back. It wasn't one of our shows. Yeah. Um, I think it was with Doolittle. Yeah. Um, and they, their funding was had a big question mark over it, I think. I wonder what's happened with that. So far, yeah. So far, all is I think (laughs) okay. Amazing stuff, absolutely. Um, And then, of course, the Beyond Blue website. Um, This is a you know fantastic resource for all things mental health related. There's loads of tips about maintaining good mental health, which is you know of value to us all. Um, You know, we don't. We don't need to think of it as mental illness, but good mental health. Like, yeah, in a proactive way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and it's got great fact sheets on how to help family members of friends who might be having a tough time, or just some, um, you know, activities that you can get involved with, or how to seek help right now. They've got really great information. So, definitely one to look yeah. at. And then that's five. 
Yeah, so the last one is the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, which hmm. I think has got some of the best fact sheets in terms of um, sexually transmitted infections. So Melbourne Sexual Health Centre is a, like a health service, a clinic in Melbourne that's run as part of Alfred Health, and they have great information. They also have some great little tips and tools on their website, including um, a little anonymous link of how you can notify uh, previous sexual partners of a potential exposure to um, a sexually transmitted wow. infection. So you can just include details and they'll get a little email, email or a text message that's anonymous just that's telling them to go and get checked. So, you know, a great, great little website, got lots of helpful information there too. And you'd have to think that in terms of people looking stuff up on the internet, you know, sexual health would be a particular one where people would feel so much embarrassment possibly about seeking help, you know, with a doctor and having to talk face-to-face with someone. So the internet would absolutely be a great go-to so knowing a great website in that area is vital yeah and the great things about all these websites all the ones i've chosen it's all in very you know easy to understand language it's not um you know it's really simple and it's direct it's not sort of with the you know the melbourne sexual health center they're saying it as it is it's all really Mm -hmm. clear and it's great helpful information the bit that I found most groundbreaking about everything you just said was the concept of instead of going to your search engine and putting in symptoms or, you know, whatever it is that you want to look, actually going to a reputable website and then putting in the search yeah. term in that. Like, that's quite groundbreaking to me because, you know, the images and information that you get bombarded with just in the headlines as soon as you put something into your search engine can be pretty full on and for someone who is already stressed and anxious about something and is likely to be ruminating about it you know at 3am that's the stuff that sticks in your head absolutely and so ideally that would be the way to do it sort of get to the website and then do your search but otherwise if you're just going to pop it into your into your search engine make sure you scan the list of of hits that come up for these websites that I've mm. mentioned, then click on those because that's yep. where the good information is going to be. Better Health, RCH, Jean Hales, Andrology Australia, Beyond Blue and Melbourne Sexual Health Centre. Yep, they're my top six. Thanks. That was great. <laughs> I've written them down. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have been talking about a whole range of things from health websites to epigenetics to Zika virus. <laughs> Thanks for mouthing that to me, Ms. Medic. And now we're going to talk about perfectionism. And I think in a funny way, this is actually going to lead in beautifully to our final segment on babies and emotion. Dr. Malice has a real talent for linking things in. So, perfectionism. Uh, I think we were talking about it in the intro today and and mentioned that, you know, it's something that feels very familiar to me uh, and to a lot of us. And it's something that, as a psychologist, I see in clients a lot. So, I think that was really the impetus for me wanting to know a bit more about it. And the first thing I want to say is that there has been a bit of debate in the literature about whether there's benefits to perfectionism or whether it's all bad. You know, can it actually work well for some people and should we be giving it such a hard time? But the the conclusion seems to be at the moment that the negatives far outweigh the positives and if you might be someone or you know someone or your children 
are showing tendencies towards perfectionism, then it's something worth trying to address and trying to change a little bit. So I think we all have a pretty good sense about what perfectionism is, but I guess just to start there, the sorts of stuff that goes along with it are things like setting incredibly high standards for yourself, um, finding yourself really focused on failures and mistakes that you've made and, and finding that it's really hard to switch off from those, and also having a bit of a sense that um, you're really worried about what others will think if you don't get everything right and, and the impact that that will have socially for you. Um, and so in terms of the research literature, all of that stuff sort of boils down to two things. One is high standards for yourself and the other is you know extreme an extreme sense of being really self-critical um, in the way that you evaluate mistakes that you make. That is in relation to adults, I guess, but I wanted to also mention how perfectionism tends to surface in kids. So these are the sorts of things that you might notice in children who have a, have perfectionistic tendencies. Um, things like becoming highly anxious or angry or upset about making mistakes. Um, chronic procrastination is another one because they can be so worried about making mistakes that they keep putting stuff off because there's so much fear and anxiety about starting in case it doesn't go well. Uh, becoming easily frustrated and giving up easily a lot of fear around embarrassment and humiliation uh, they might be overly cautious and really thorough in tasks so you know they might spend three hours on something that should actually take 20 minutes and if it doesn't look the way they want they redo it um, and also having sort of catastrophic reactions and meltdowns when things don't go perfectly or or as expected um, and, and the last thing which is I found interesting as well can be this sort of refusal to try new things again because there's that big fear about not getting it right and making a real a really big mistake so that's what perfectionism uh, looks like I guess and and I should say that while I'm talking about all of this, I'm drawing very heavily on research um, from a couple of people in Canada, um, Gordon Flett and Paul Hewitt, who have done a lot of research in this area um, and, and published some really fabulous papers. So I'm going to focus on two things, really. Firstly is uh, why perfectionism is such a risk, I guess, and, and why we might need to address it. So these are some of the things that perfectionism has been linked to f in, from the research world. It's been linked to anxiety to depression, to obsessive compulsive disorder, to suicide in adolescence and to burnout. And it can also predict, and again this comes from research findings, it can predict behaviours such as bulimia, compulsive exercise and even self-mutilation. So they're pretty severe things that perfectionism is linked with and I guess the the underlying part of that from an emotional perspective that is worth talking about is the way that people feel when they make mistakes if they have perfectionistic tendencies so when they don't get things right because of these huge high standards that they set for themselves there can be this profound sense of shame um, and defeat and failure and that can lead to these deep feelings of hopelessness um, which is why we, we can be so worried about these perfectionistic tendencies. So, firstly, it can come up, it can, I guess, um, 
it can what's the word I'm looking for? Manifest. Manifest. That's exactly <laughs> it. Uh, it can manifest in a whole range of different ways, which is interesting to note because it's not like all perfectionists demonstrate exactly the same behaviours. So one of the research papers I found talked about sort of five different types of perfectionism, which I thought I'd run you through briefly and see if any of these sound familiar. So one of them is this notion of an academic achiever who is just really focused, you know, in school or at work on sort of getting 100%, you know, they're talking about 110% um, on, in everything that they do. We're having some nods around the room already. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second uh, way that it can sometimes manifest is um, this notion of a risk evader. Uh, so that notion of not trying uh, new things because you don't want to make any uh, mistakes or you don't want to fail. Third is this notion of an accuracy assessor. So these people are really focused on precision and, and being exact in everything that they do. And often these are the people who will redo things if they don't look exactly the way that they want them to. Fourthly, there's that concept of a procrastinator, procrastinating perfectionists who are so worried about making mistakes and the self-doubt is so deep that it impairs their ability to even start things. And finally, there's this notion of a controlling image manager where people are really, really worried about what people will think about them and really worried about not being regarded as perfect and right. So I, I give you those those five, not to say that's um, the full spectrum of perfectionism, but just to, I guess, note that it can manifest in different ways and it's different for different people. And if some of those are sounding familiar, then, you know, there, there might be some perfectionistic traits happening. And the other two things are it's on the rise. That's very clear from the research. And the, the ironic thing about it is that perfectionists are very unlikely to seek help which when you think about it makes sense because they're so worried about making mistakes and, and being a failure. It's very, very difficult to admit that things aren't going well for them because that sense of shame and embarrassment comes up. So it can be a rare thing for people with perfectionistic te tendencies, firstly, to notice that uh, it's a problem and then secondly, to seek help. I also imagine that it would be very hard to let go of I don't even really need to imagine that. I even actually know that. Um, because, of the, because of the positive connotations we have to it, I mean, we constantly yeah. use the words like, the, oh, that was, you know, perfect. That's, yeah. You know, oh, I had a perfect time or, you know, it's the way that someone looks is she's perfect, he's perfect. Like, yep. There's all these, and so it, it is a, it's still really hard to, br to break away from that and to even... For someone who strives perf to perfection to say, like, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be perfect. I don't want to be perfect yeah. when I have been and yeah. it's got me these yeah. great... Or, like, for me, near enough is good enough or... Yeah, you know, that's not who I am. Yeah. And that's it. I think you're tapping into this really important point, which, which is it's so tied up with people's identity and who they are that actually to let go of that feels incredibly scary. Yeah. Well, it, it requires nothing less than a personality transplant because <laughs> your whole personality has been grounded. No, no, no one on this panel, by the way, is at that extreme. Mm. But that's the tendency uh, uh, that we actually, as you suggest in that research view, it's one way of regulating ourselves against some very unpleasant feelings because yeah. you can't actually be held to be accountable for shame or humiliation or not getting right if you're perfect. Mm -hmm. So you figure out, well, then I better be perfect and I won't feel any of those things. Mm. But, of course, that's not going to work in life mm. because life happens to be not perfect. Yeah.
Yeah. The research also shows that it's very difficult to completely get rid of perfectionism in people who have it very strongly. But what is possible is to decrease it. And it takes work, um, but but it is possible and decreasing it can make a big difference. So um, I thought it would also be worth just going through some of the mm-hmm. strategies that either people could use um, themselves or they could use with their children or if, if that's not working, they could um, see a psychologist and um, get someone to sort of coach them through some of these strategies and sometimes having someone else go through it with you can be hugely valuable. So... The first one is pretty obvious and it's about lowering your standards, which I think is what you were just talking about before, Ms. Medic, and it sounds pretty counterintuitive. Why would anyone want to lower their standards? Um, but it's about lowering the the importance of being perfect in your mind. And so one way to, to approach that is to spend some time looking at the costs of perfectionism, so the costs to your health, to your interpersonal relationships, to your stress levels, to the lack of joy that you're experiencing. And also what we tend to find is that people who have really strong perfectionistic traits actually don't perform better because this desire to be perfect all the time gets in the way of of what they actually produce so it doesn't in the end lead you to being perfect in fact so looking at the cost of perfectionism and you know overtly lowering your standards and trying to decrease the importance of being perfect is the first strategy second strategy is seeing failures as pathways to success and this is pretty profound, I think. So instead of seeing failures as these awful catastrophic um, events that, that bring about shame and embarrassment, seeing them as opportunities and none of us are going to get better and none of us are going to learn without making mistakes and, in fact, you can't go through life without making mistakes. So changing the way you think about that. If I had more time, I would talk for an hour about the work of Carol Dweck and her work around growth mindsets and fixed mindsets. And perhaps we'll talk about that on a future show. But it's about this notion that mistakes are expected. Mistakes and failures are how we learn and it's how our brain evolves and actually how we get smarter. So if you're not in that zone of challenging yourself and making mistakes, you're actually not learning. Thirdly, promoting self-acceptance. You know, you used the phrase before, Ms. Medic, nobody's perfect, in fact. So really trying to take that on board. Nobody's perfect. Showing yourself some self-compassion and being kind to yourself when you do make mistakes and sort of thinking about yourself and speaking to yourself in the way that you would speak to a friend or someone else who was making mistakes, you know, with that sort of same level of compassion. And the fourth one is about stress management. So... It's about, I guess, looking at your life uh, more broadly and thinking about life balance um, and getting that stuff right, making sure that you've got other parts of your life that feel joyful and pleasurable, that you're connecting with the people around you, you've got strong social networks. Um, You know, you have times where you really are in the moment. You know, mindfulness really comes into this sort of stuff. Um, But but getting the rest of your life in a bit of a better balance so that... um, the the areas of your life where the perfectionistic traits tend to be strongest are not all that you're doing. And, and importantly, not to try to get that perfectly right. <laughs> yeah, yes. that imperfect yeah, balance. Yeah, as you go too. through, mm. yeah, as you go through all of those Each strategies, of those, you're not yes. going to nail them all, and that's okay. But having a go is is what it's about. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think I um I have yes perfectionist tendencies, and I think I'd always heard people say, oh, you know. 
there's no such thing as perfect and imperfect is fine and I always was, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> Previously, until I had children and I started to see some perfectionist tendencies manifest in my own child's behaviour and then I had this overwhelming sense of, I don't want you to have to do that. I don't want you to have to feel like this. I don't want you to think like that about yourself. And it was only then that I was truly able to see what the negative connotations to this strive towards this impossible, impossible goal, uh, how that, you know, how negative that could be and how it, it really it does nothing more than cause suffering and pain, mm. that strive for perfectionism. You know, it is an unbeatable tug of war with Frankenstein. You will never be perfect. So only option is to drop the rope. And I'm about to put you on the spot, but we were having a conversation off air about a book that you bought your daughter. You have to talk about oh, that yeah, on air sure. I love so it. this is a picture book suitable for your kind of preschoolers or early school age children called Beautiful Oops. And it's a great little book that's got lots of little fold out pieces um, that it's essentially about, you know, when you make a mistake, you can turn it into something beautiful. So, you know, if you accidentally spill something on your piece of artwork, what could you do with the splodge that mm-hmm. results or a tear in the paper? Well, you could put your finger through and make little dinosaur legs. Yeah, and it's this great little resource to help introduce children to the fact that, you know, what seems like a mistake can actually become something beautiful. Mm. Um, and we don't need to, you know, immediately rip up the piece of paper, throw it away and start again. But what can it become? And it creates that sense of creativity and, um, yeah, and just really um, accepting that that there is opportunities in our mistakes. Yeah, and they're inevitable. And they're inevitable yeah. and they're to be, they can be enjoyed and cherished and loved. Beautiful oops. Beautiful oops. And we're going to come back with our final segment today, which is about babies and emotions. So don't go away. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Malice, I'm going to go straight to you without further ado because we are running out of time and I want to hear all about babies and emotions. We, we actually talked about the worldview about perfectionism and that is a cultural phenomenon. Uh, what my concern is is how it gets translated in the family and in both ends of the life cycle, both in the nursery which is between mother and baby. And the other end of the life cycle is when we're caring for our parents. Mm. And uh, I dedicate this segment almost to now for my mum, who as an extraordinary octogenarian had Mm -hmm. a dental major procedure a month ago. And when you have dental procedures, it's one of the most emotive parts of the human body, both in birth... Uh, as, as babies when they go through teething. It's a highly emotional phase both for the baby and the mother <laughs> and the father and the mm. siblings for the whole family <laughs> just from the eruption of a tooth. And at the other end of the life cycle where teeth are being actually removed. Mm. And for the first time since babyhood, as my mother reminded me, she returns when all her teeth are gone on the upper uh, mm. row she returns to that state which she had been born with so it's not the first time 
So that was a, a, a moment of revelation for me. And it explained to me why there was such an incredible intense emotion surrounding the experience. Now, you may wonder what this has got to do with the website uh, link that we put up, where there's a mother who's playing a, a very sad song about her lost love, uh, and her the fo- camera's focused on her 10-month-old baby, who through the... Uh, process of this song actually goes through a whole roller coaster of emotions that are perfectly attuned to not only the mother's lyrics but which is language but more importantly to her prosody that is the sound of her voice as she sings her lament the beginning of the clips the mother actually asks the baby see what you think or tell me what you think at the end by all accounts, the baby's told her in screams mm. what is going on. I was surprised. The mother actually said, oh, don't be upset. It's only a song. Well, of course, it's not only a song. From the baby's point of view, it is his whole environment that has mm. changed. Now, in the video, his environment has changed to one of sadness, to be attuned with his mother. And in the very end, when she perks up and says, oh, it's all right, the baby perks up. Now, that is the reparative moment or phase. So, unfortunately, we've got a misconception of emotions between mothers and carers and babies as it's all got to be perfect. You know, we mustn't make our babies cry lest we ourselves get upset and we mustn't cry in front of our babies. And, of course, this is all coming from this perfectionist notion that we've just been discussing. And, in fact, the truth of the matter is we always go through upsets and hopefully repair And at the end of that clip, what you see is reparative moments. Now, that is what decreases or down-regulates, in technical terms, the baby's stress. If that doesn't happen, then the upregulated stress and de-stress keeps going. Now, if that keeps going on every encounter with the mum and she only sings lamenting songs for a lost loves for the rest of the day, the baby's stress level will go through the ceiling and, of course, will be at risk for relational trauma. Now, the final link I just wish to make, that this may sound all very nice and warm and fuzzy and so on, but it's grounded in our worldview of do children even feel pain? Now, I was absolutely gobsmacked to learn that it was only in the late 80s that we realized that children felt pain enough that they should get full anesthesia in surgery. And the reason that finding came out is they did a study on children who were light anesthetized and heavy. The light ones, one third of them died. Heavy anesthetized children all lived. And the simple fact was it was because light anesthesia created such stress and the stress hormones killed them. So what we're talking about here may be just one of those great clips on YouTube, but the profound, deep understanding of babies in stress and de-stress that leads to trauma is not just a song. It's a life and death matter. And that attunement between parents and babies. And reversing the stress. Mm. That's right. I don't know how on earth we're going to leave that conversation there, but we have to. Well, perhaps just see the link. 
yeah. on, on the I gather to have a look and at our Facebook page with on the, the video. YouTube link or, or our own, own Facebook link. And I know we say this a lot, but I really feel like we need to come back to this topic <laughs> in the future and, and do it a bit more justice. Yeah. That's it for us today. I can't quite believe it. Dr. Malice, Miss Medic, Kent, thank you to you all. Uh, two weeks till Radiothon. I'm just putting it out there. Keep it in mind. Um, but we will be back next Sunday with another full show for you. And stay tuned now for your Hour of Science with Einstein and Gogo. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R 102.7. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.